probably do that meditation again next week. I'm going to take care of some nuts and bolts of the chorus in just a moment, but maybe just take a few minutes if anybody has any thoughts, questions, or reflections on that particular meditation. Anything you saw or realized about mindfulness? Anything clarify that, Jana? Uh, I don't do open awareness meditation very often, and it's interesting because I could really see how without an object to focus on, my mind was really scrambling for something to focus on. It kept being like, oh yeah, sound, that's it. Oh yeah, breathing, that's it. And it kept, I could really see it grasping for something to Mm-hmm. Which I don't see that often. I know it's all there. Yeah, yeah. This system, or this particular way, I mean, it's, it's nothing sort of unusual. I mean, anybody could be doing this, but this was formulated uh, by Ajahn Brahm, who, it's sort of ironic, he is uh, he's a Western monk in the Ajahn Chah tradition, but he's uh, really into having his students cultivate deep states of concentration to mindfulness of breathing. But it's interesting that he wants his students to be able to have that simple, unbroken, mindful awareness for an hour, easily for an hour, before he even asks them to start developing silent awareness, which then he wants a person to cultivate for an hour before they start paying attention to the breath. And it's precisely the reason that you brought up, Jana, is when we're just tracking the present moment without giving the mind anything else to do, it, it discovers the relevance of relaxation, you know. But if we're given an object right at the beginning of our meditation practice, we generally take a hold of the object with our ordinary mind, which is a mind that strives or grasps, trying to control things. So just to track the present moment, the, the effort is very subtle because it doesn't matter if the mind's all over the place, you know, for that hour. It ha- absolutely nothing matters except whether we're tracking that this is how it is. So we're just letting, letting everything move and just tracking it. Oh yeah, it's like this, it's like this. And practicing not forgetting. It's like this, it's like this, it's like this. And then, the, then to begin to explore silence in that. So it's just a different approach, and we'll do it for at least another week, and maybe a few more weeks, as a way of uh, doing two things, highlighting what do we mean by mindfulness, what is the lived experience of mindfulness, and then, interestingly, the better picture we have of a moment of mindfulness, the more we start recognizing all the good friends that tend to arise when we're mindful, which are the seven factors of awakening. They arise, they, they naturally hang out together, the gang, <laughs> a good gang. And uh, so, like, you, you know, we probably, some of us, notice some tranquility uh, tonight, just hanging around with the mindfulness. So we notice, like, brightness and energy, like rapture even, or just energy, or the quality of investigation. So we probably noticed, maybe didn't name them, but <coughs> we noticed a lot of other wholesome qualities right there. Any other reflections about the meditation tonight?
Yeah, Jonathan. I just have a question. Maybe the answer is that some of the factors awakening that we have to study this term, but if one can have well, for example, uh, did you notice something when you went from uh, continuity of mindful awareness to the continuity of silent mindful awareness? So did that instruction to notice the gaps in the thoughts and to be interested without doing anything just to be interested in extending the silence did you notice anything about the quality of the mind shift so I think your point is correct Jonathan that yeah exactly so remember we're doing two things and this is I think really where your question is pointing it's a good question because it's confusing. We're doing actually two things. We're trying to increase the brightness of the mind, the power of the mind to see things, and we're doing that in order to realize fundamentally everything is happening on its own. So that release. So the question you asked is really pointing to that last thing. Like, well, if everything is just happening freely, why do we have to do anything else? And we don't. But we may know that on some level, intellectually or maybe even somewhat experientially, but we're probably, nobody is living that fully. And what helps us live that more and more fully, everything just happening on its own, is to increase the brightness of the mind, the power of the mind, the balance of the mind to see things. So really we're developing the seven factors in order to realize everything is happening on its own and what a relief that is you know the sense of self falls away and this profound experience that everything's happening on its own and it's beautiful and it's okay arises and then there isn't anything more to do you know except not there not being anything more to do doesn't limit us from responding and being who we are either you know there's nothing that there's nothing that needs to be done and there's nothing that doesn't need to be done <laughs> if that makes sense but you know what I mean it's like it works both ways the freedom isn't just to be passive but it's also the freedom to, to be and do but we'll get to that more at the end of the course when we talk about the seven factors coming into balance to some degree at least any last thoughts before we go on about the fifth tonight what you notice? And so, feel free in your daily practice to go back to the way you normally sit, but why not at least to some degree explore some of the instructions that are given in the guided meditations on Monday night in your home practice? And just take some time to, to explore that. And if you want more of a description, I'm pretty sure, I'm positive actually, there's a, Ajahn Brahm has this online. He had a little booklet that then became part of his book that's published by a regular publisher called Mindfulness, Bliss, and Beyond. Mindfulness, Bliss, and Beyond. I don't remember the title of the little booklet, but it basically explains this if you want more detail. But if you Google Meditation Instruction Ajahn Brahm, you'll get it. And I'll, I'll send a link out when I send out the, uh, 
other readings tomorrow. Which brings me to the nuts and bolts. So I'll start first by saying there is a sign-in out in the lobby. Please sign in. And if you don't think the office has your email already, most of you we do, but many of you probably don't, please, please print your email very neatly so it's easy for us to copy correctly. And uh, somebody, hopefully, one of the office volunteers will enter all those things into our Google Apps and then we'll have an email list for the whole group. As soon as we have that, I'll send out the readings to everybody um, that you can use as you want. So nobody's required to do reading, but the high idea of this class is for people who have a serious commitment to practice, have the intention to practice every day, not that that always happens, but you have that aspiration to practice every day. They, everybody here has done at least a couple retreats, the idea. So then what, we're, what we do, you know, the reason we take a class like this is to create the support to develop our practice. And one thing that can ha really help is um, basically having our, our notions of what practice is challenged by new information, whether you're listening to a talk or reading a book or talking with your friends about their practice. So we, we want to let in the new information. So if you want to do that through the readings, great. And a lot of people find value in that. It just depends on how much time you have. But at least you'll be part of the discussions in my talks and then any other inputs that you want to bring in. Now the important thing isn't just to do the reading but even more important than the reading is to reflect on the new information and to intellectually grasp it, you know, integrate it, think about it, and then sort of use it to see, to illuminate your actual experience. That's the whole point of the information, is to see if we see something we're not yet see, seeing or understand something we're not yet understanding to the new maps that we're bringing in. So first we have to understand the map. We need to ask questions, you know, is it this or is it that? We get a sense, oh, this is the conceptual map that the Buddha is trying to lay out. And then we use it to sort of look at our experience, to understand our experience. So there's a uh, chewing, you know, we're chewing on the teachings a little bit in our discussions, our big group discussions, Every other week we have small group discussions where we break out into groups of three and share about what we're seeing and what, how we're understanding the teachings and how it you know, makes sense or how it doesn't make sense in terms of our actual experiences. And that process of cheering, of course, is messy. Sometimes we really understand, but we actually don't. And sometimes we don't understand, but that's actually good. <laughs> you know, so it, it can be messy. So don't second-guess you know, when you're discussing or when you're reflecting, don't second-guess yourself. Just engaging the process, just letting the information in, thinking about the information, applying it or seeing your experience through it. Just doing that, however messy and confusing it might be, is probably really useful. And part of what makes it useful is, like I said, if, we, if you know you don't understand, that's good because then you're going to be, it's going to provoke some interest and maybe even asking some questions or rereading something. And that will be good. So much of what keeps us stuck is the arrogance 
that we're not stuck <laughs> and the thought that we know what's going on or that we're you know making progress so um, it's okay if uh, if we get confused it actually might be just the ticket so sign up when you leave tonight so we make sure that we have everyone's email so we can have a complete email list much thanks to Scott who has created the whole system that the center runs on now but in particular the Buddhist studies class so we have a little web page that Scott will put up all the emails that go out in case you've lost yours you can find that um, that e- that web address is I'll, I'll try to remember if I yeah, yeah. thanks and uh and to Stan, who records the talks and puts them up. And we happen to have two people in Australia who be who used to live in the Twin Cities that have been living in Australia and following along uh, with the audio talks and would like to be more formally members of the class, even though they're in Australia. So uh, they'll be doing some of the readings and listening to the talks and discussing amongst themselves their practice. So welcoming them and uh, Paul Sakharov who a lot of you know won't be here but will be listening as well so thanks to Stan for making that possible and then if you're out of town you can always listen to the talks too so we'll be getting those links out to everybody via the email list Um, one thing that we've been working with over the years and you can just see if it makes sense in your life but if you do miss a class you might just make it a ritual to send me an email not that I need to know what's going on, like you're sick or that you've got a business trip or family obligation, but it's just a way of acknowledging that I'm in the class, I'm committed, and I'm not going to be there on Monday night. And so just think of that as something that might support you. It's not supporting me. I don't really need to know if you're coming or not coming, but it. I think it's often good for people to make that kind of commitment that we're part of a community. Now, this used to be a more intimate group. Now we're a little bit bigger. But still, we want to maintain that sense that uh, we have a sense of responsibility, like to do our practice as much as we can, given our lives, and to study as much as makes sense, and to be here on Monday night when we can be here. And when we can't be here, to be totally okay about not you know, don't feel guilty if you've got a business trip or family obligation or if you're sick. But this kind of class, as opposed to some of the other programs, we're making a commitment to each other. And it actually really supports everybody if everybody makes a commitment as best they can. So that's just a suggestion. Take it up if it makes sense. Um, so there's that option. I'll sit at 7 o'clock. And sometimes you won't be able to get here at 7, like when it's snowing out. Feel free to come up to five minutes late. But then if you're later than 7.05, just sit in the lobby or you can sit in the community room. And then I usually ring the bell about 7.25 and then you can come in. But it's nice for people not to be entering all the way through between 7 and 7.30 because it just interrupts the people who are here for that optional set. Everybody should be here by 7 as much as possible. I mean 7.30 for the beginning uh, with the chanting. 
Um, if anybody's interested later in doing the uh, talk about Donna or donation, uh, it's nice for somebody who's been around for a couple of years to make that. So if you're interested in giving that talk, just like a three, four minute talk, maybe week four or five, something like that, you can just let me know. Oh, and the last uh, piece of business is uh, we need some program hosts somebody to come a little bit earlier doesn't need to be a lot earlier you know probably 20 minutes early 20 minutes before 7 just to bring up a few chairs we don't need too many just to heat on make sure the doors are unlocked things like that so if we get enough volunteers it would be just once for the uh, for this 8 week class but you know if there's just a few of you you could take turns and maybe do it 2 or 3 times and then at the end of the night, making sure the building's closed up or finding somebody who will close the building up. So if you're interested in doing that, you can just let me know afterward. And uh, Jan usually organizes that, but she's not here tonight. She's got a cold. Any other nuts and bolts that I'm forgetting that anybody else can remember? Great. So I'll talk a little bit. Um, about this topic of the seven factors of awakening in a minute but I, I thought it would be nice to start with a, a reflection and a chance to hear from each other a little bit at least maybe not everybody but many of us and feel free to come up and get a pen uh, or and paper if you'd like uh, so you can do that now if you want but the reflection is going to be we're going to bring to mind times when it appeared to us that our mind was in a beautiful balance. And you know, with some of you know, with the seven factors of awakening, there are the energizing factors and the tranquilizing factors. So basically we're saying, the Buddha is saying that there are a lot of wholesome factors of mind and some of those wholesome factors tend to bring energy into the mind and some of those factors tend to uh, ground that energy into tranquility, into calmness. So when you bring to mind moments in your life when you felt your mind was in a beautiful balance, bright, calm at the same time. So it's almost like we're painting a picture like, well, what did that look like or what did that feel like, that balanced mind? How was it able to function or how did it um, manifest how did it express itself in that situation that balance of mind because you know these seven factors of awakening they're considered I think it's fair to say they're considered like the most beautiful things in the conditioned realm and uh, in the Buddhist tradition uh, maybe surprisingly because you sometimes hear this about the metta the loving kindness sutta but actually the discourse that was considered to be almost magically healing was the talks on the seven factors of enlightenment and there's a couple well known uh, discourses one where uh, one of the more senior monks um, at the time of the Buddha Venerable Maha Kasapa uh, was had some terrible illness and the Buddha showed up and he recited his talk he had given previously on the seven factors of awakening as medicine you know some of you know that in the in the Vinaya the 
rules to the monks and nuns. They're only allowed certain kinds of medicine, you know, butter, honey, uh, urine, and a few other strange things. No, no, that's not now, but not back then. <laughs> the only reason dark chocolate is allowed is because it didn't exist at the time. <laughs> the rules are a little arcane. <laughs> but anyway, but uh, often what was real medicine were different aspects of the teaching. So the Buddha, of course, chants this, and as it goes in these sort of stories, Mahakasapa said, Ah, oh, the ten factors of awakening and stood up, the disease had sort of disappeared. And even the Buddha was once really seriously sick, and another, one of the other senior monks, uh, I think it was Venerable Mahakunda, uh, chanted the Buddha's talk on the seven factors of awakening, and then the disease dissipated for the Buddha too. So the point here, though, is... Uh, First, of, first and foremost, to just open our mind to the possibility that the nature of the mind is this truly beautiful thing. Wynn and I were just in uh, Mexico for a six-day vacation in a very beautiful place. You know, and as beautiful as those places in nature are, it's not even in the same league with when we see the beautiful states of mind that are present. So we want to have this sense of what is possible for this heart and this mind. Sometimes we get a sense of it just being around somebody beautiful, you know, somebody in a beautiful place or a really wise, loving human being. And we just get a sense of how amazingly beautiful. And we want to say, this person is, but it isn't actually the person that's beautiful. It's the, it's what's shining through, you know, coming through their personality, shining through the body, the personality. More beautiful than gems, more beautiful than anything. So this is what's truly beautiful, and let's just share with each other, take some time, if you have examples of seeing it in your own mind, your own heart, some kind of beautiful balance, or seeing it in another person, manifesting in another person, whether it's a friend or somebody famous that you happen to be around one time. Any thoughts about beautiful qualities of mind that have arisen? Yeah, I know. Um, well, I think I Beautiful way of relating to myself came from 
later I was working with a particular disappointment and rather than beating myself up over it as I normally would, I, um, I just developed some kindness around it and that's where balance kind of arose. And it stuck with me for a while. I really tried, I, I tried really hard. I tried not to grasp. I grasped it. Not grasping. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that okay. If I if I try to make this last, I'm feeling really good right now. I'm feeling so in balance. If I try to make it last and hold on to it, I know it's gonna slip away. I know it's gonna slip away anyway. And it's you know over the past week it kind of has. You know, I've maybe reverted to old patterns and habits of, of seeing things and responding to things. But but at least now I felt it and I know. Um, I don't know where it comes from, and so I, I have more confidence in my ability to get back there. Yeah, and that, that last one is really important. I think it's one of the telltale signs of, of actually experiencing something inherent in the mind and heart that's beautiful is the confidence that even when we lose it, it's still accessible. Like, it, you, you can't, we can't destroy the potential to re-experience it. And uh, a lot of confidence comes from that. Thanks, Anya. Other thoughts? Yeah, Gail. It's nice if it's outside, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in a beautiful place. But if I'm doing something physical, um, and it forces me to really want to look at what I'm doing, a lot easier to have a, a wider space. Um, I'm trying to breathe. It's a lot harder to get enough on the mind just here and right now. Yeah. I used to think it was just because everything was so beautiful, and that was what I liked, and then the more I understood it was, no, it was the physical aspect of it that actually was something else. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing with yoga. Yeah. And, and it points out a, an important principle that this, the arising of what's beautiful, this beautiful balance, is more about skillfully um, suppressing the unbeautiful, you know. And it's hard in Buddhism, in the way the Buddha taught, you almost always find teachings on the seven factors of awakening with the discussion of the hindrances. And they're just and you can see that, you know, there's a real correlation to how the development of certain of the factors of awakening are what suppress the hindrances or cause the hindrances not to be afflicting the mind. So when we pour ourselves into some physical activity like yoga or something like that, it's like to really show up with the yoga or with the knitting or whatever it is, we have to completely let go of what the mind would otherwise be doing or obsessing with, fixing on. I think it slows down too. Yeah. That's Jenna. Um, when I think about a time when I had sort of a balance in my friend for an extended period of time, it was in my 20s when I was traveling around Central America with a friend and um, 
really got to this place where I realized that absolutely everything that was happening was sort of out of my control. There were no bus schedules. There was no, I mean, like you couldn't really make anything happen. And, and just surrendering to that and actually just sort of enjoying the fact that like, you know, oh, the bus is going to be five hours late. Cool. Let's just sit here. <laughs> <laughs> it was, a, you know, I just really sort of opened up to the experiences that were happening and like let go of everything. It was really too magical. Yeah. yeah. I think that's why people like to, tra- I mean, people travel for a lot of reasons, but people who are, who go back to traveling, it's, it's that uh, freedom from, uh, you know, one of the trouble, troubles of living in a culture that we live in, which is generally, I think, really good. Like, if, if I had to choose, I'd probably choose a place like Minnesota to live. Um, but there's a downside to it, which is we get very uh, seduced by the idea that I can make things, con- you know, controlled, or I can make things organized. I can get it together, you know. And this is whole this whole culture here, especially in the Minnesota and Minneapolis, you know, we're really we got it together. And uh but we don't realize how dependent we are on that. And getting together is good. That part is good. Being an organized culture where the garbage gets picked picked up and most people follow the rules, that part is all good. Being dependent on it isn't good. So when we go traveling and things go the other way or they can't be controlled then we get to see how dependent we were on things being orderly and then it's it's like you said if you can if you can encourage the mind to step beyond that there's a lot of space I you know one of the things I was going to say and I think it relates in sort of a funny way to what you said Jana is I took a nap today while I was working here I've got a little bench in my office and I just lie down I often do that and every once in a while when I'm doing that deep relaxation or just resting, I get into this sort of, I don't know, funny place where it's like uh, an energetic shift and I, my whole body just feels like it's in a free fall. And it's, uh, and it's really pleasant and scary at the same time. And uh, so it's like practicing relaxing with that, feel, that sort of free fall feeling. And uh, so that's a beautiful, I mean, it, for me, it takes a, a very refined balance. It's like to be, to be really attentive, but not controlling it at all. And if I do control it, it goes away. You know, so all you can do is just sort of allow life to arise naturally. And that sounds like what you were learning, you know, on the, on the trip. Time for a couple more reflections. Yeah, Louise. Well, I was asking myself this question, and all the examples that I can think of seem to be when I relax my daily life, when I'm doing that work, or when I'm on a tree, or something where I'm not in my daily work life. So then I'm trying to see if there are times when I have my mind in balance in the midst of this doing kind of life. And and that's more challenging. The, the only example that I can think of right now is sometimes in meetings if I make a very conscious effort 
that I'm just going to really listen to every person that's there and not try to come up with a solution and just see what emerges. I make a very conscious effort to do that. Then I can feel some of that balance. Um, and it isn't. That's a very nice thing. But it's, it's not a throughout the whole day kind of thing. It's yeah. that, yes, I'm really going but that's okay and uh, I think that's the path actually is to take advantage of moments and transitions are a good time like the beginning of the meeting or after the meeting before or when you get home but before you start cooking or when you get up but before you those transitions are good times because the mind isn't is done with one thing but hasn't necessarily picked up the next Louise, you know, the mother Louise, or the cook Louise, or the office person Louise, and and just to let, you know, just to let that moment open up a little bit. But the thing is, the more we have those little moments, each of those little moments builds the confidence, and it's it's that confidence that uh, it makes everything else okay, it, because that's what keeps us from in the middle of our busy neurotic days you know is that we have no confidence that it's here we have confidence that oh yeah if I could only travel again in Central America or if I could only take a nap or if I could only you know do this or that I'll get it back so but the actual experience the more we're really there in those experiences we see that it isn't about um it's like we're seeing something about the mind that doesn't come and go. That this balance is always available, I guess is another way of saying that. But if you're trying to get it back, you know, that's not going to be it. It's more like uh, seeing it in that busyness as opposed to trying to make it arise in that. It's like, and it's the confidence that allows us to see it. And that's what keeps us from seeing is we don't think it's there because we're so convinced that when I'm neurotic like this, that balance isn't here. That it's a misunderstanding of what the balance is. It's not something we've created. What we've done is we've abandoned stuff and something is revealed. And uh, that's what the confidence teaches us. So we have to be content with moments, you know, and, and really, in a way, mining the insight like really mining it meaning really feeling the confidence that comes from it and the appreciation the gratitude any last thoughts one more yeah Jimmy for me I'm thinking about when you first brought it up and then it, it follows with many of the things that you're saying even about your laying down that sense of fear for me like the strongest sense of that kind of balance happened. It's happened a few times, but the strongest one that comes to mind was um, being with my dad when he died and having this moment with him um, the day he died, but earlier in the day where he had been really pretty out of it and delusional and very agitated and stuff. And then just one point I went in early in the morning, it was like six, six o'clock in the morning and he's sitting up in bed and we had this completely lucid conversation with each other for an hour and then later in the day he was gone again. And it was 
such a gift, and I was just like so there with him, and he was so there with me, and it was just, it just made everything, you know, I just felt myself just get really calm, he was really calm, I was able to leave there just feeling like, you know, knowing he was probably going to be mm-hmm. there at the end of the day. Like yeah. Like, everything is the way it should be, and it's fun, and, and, you know, I've gotten little bits of that with other people I've been close to, Anybody want to volunteer for Jimmy? <laughs> Any of Jimmy's good friends? <laughs> yeah, but, but this is what I meant earlier about chewing. Like, so we take these different things we've heard and, and these experiences we've had and we chew on them like, well, what was it? that allowed the mind to come into such a beautiful balance at that time. Well, there was interest, right? Naturally, the, the, you really showed up. So, like you said, well, do I, does my dad need to be dying in order to really show up? Like, maybe if I really reflect, what was that showing up like? Maybe I can do it now. You know, maybe I can really show up now. And like uh, Louise was saying, hearing, like really showing up and listening to everybody. I mean, I work with that a lot myself because it's so easy to sort of, once you get sort of the stance, like you look like you're listening, to just sort of <laughs> fall back. And it's like, you know, it's, like people have those little masks out and they can kind of walk away and come back later. <laughs> I mean, it's frightening when we do that. It's better to catch yourself doing it than to not, but... But that's, I think that's exactly the purpose of the class is to notice when the balance spontaneously arises because of certain causes and conditions. But then because we've actually tasted that balance and through reflection um, sort of tasted the different facets of that balanced mind, the energetic and the tranquilizing facets, the calming facets of it, then What's amazing in the way the path works is that understanding, that sort of having tasted it, is the way to get back to it. Because, like I was saying earlier, confidence comes. When we, when we really see and understand something, what we're seeing and understanding is that it's the nature of the mind. And that it has a resonance that is as true or real as anything is. And, I mean... One time in the 90s, I, uh, when I was doing a three-month retreat at IMS, Joseph Goldstein had me do six weeks of loving-kindness practice in a way that uh, Saito Upandita teaches it, where you're working on deep states of concentration and you use a lot of resolves in the mind. You know, resolve for this quality to be strong or you resolve for this state of concentration to arise or this other state of concentration to arise. And the amazing thing about that is once, once you sort of do the preliminary work, you have the mind, just, it's not even personal, the mind has enough confidence. So when the mind says to itself, you know, resolving uh, to enter the you know, first metta jhana or something like that, then the mind just shifts because it, it has some appreciation that it's available and it just shifts. And so this confidence isn't a pretend confidence. It's a confidence based on having, like, really had that experience you had with your dad. 
So it's not something you made up. And the, the, what really begins to free up is to understand, like you did, Jimmy, that it wasn't about that moment. But that moment provided the causes and conditions for you to understand something about the mind, something that was beautiful. And we often don't want to do that. We wanted to make it about my dad and me connecting. But that was true. That was beautiful. But the, the way the mind is, how the mind is, that's apart from that more um, personal connection that you had with your dad and the sort of psychological healing that might have been there. The quality of attention, you know, the beauty of that attention or that mind. That's something sort of beyond that. And we tend not to notice that. We get really caught by the personal situation and the healing of that. So let me say a little bit more about this particular map. And those of you who've been doing the Buddhist studies classes for a while now know that you know, there are a lot of maps in the teachings of the Buddha. And these maps are sort of overlapping. So, you know, like we learn about equanimity in a lot of the maps. And almost all the maps include mindfulness as some aspect of the map. So these maps are overlapping. And one image I, I remember, uh, I forget if it might have been Nyanapanika Tara, this uh, Western monk who had practiced for a long time in Sri Lanka and done a lot of translation. He likened it to uh, the old aerial photographs, you know, when they were being taken from planes. And they wouldn't get sort of perfect grids, you know, one photo ends and the next one begins. They'd get a lot of overlapping photos and they'd have to sort of lay them down on top of one another, but you'd get the lay of the land eventually. And it's like that with all these different models, the seven factors of awakening, the five hindrances, the four noble truths, the four foundations of mindfulness. They all relate to each other. They all illuminate, help us understand the other models, the other maps that we use. But the seven factors of awakening, it's definitely one of the more beautiful maps. And this is a point I'd like us to keep coming back to because a lot of times in Buddhism people think, oh, there's no beauty. (laughs) But this map, as well as the four Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes of compassion and loving kindness and equanimity again and uh, appreciative joy. These are really beautiful maps. And, you know, if we, if we want to put something on, a, on the altar, more than the statue of the Buddha, more than flowers, would be some symbol that reminds us of the seven factors of awakening or the four Brahma Viharas. You know, or even, you know, just balanced mind. Like if we, any of you are good artists, you know, it would be wonderful. I mean, that in a way is what the statue of the Buddha is, is representing for us. It's a stand-in for the beautiful heart or the beautiful mind that's available. Let me just read something that Joseph wrote in one of, I think it was his first book that he wrote back in the late 70s, The Experience of Insight. The evolution of mind along this path can fill one with tremendous inspiration and encouragement. Imagine a mind that has brought that has brought to full development mindfulness and wisdom, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. So let's just do that for a minute. Imagine a mind that has brought to full development 
mindfulness, wisdom, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. We can just almost viscerally, energetically, just have a sense like, well, what would that feel like? What would that be like? Mindfulness has, has so been so activated or so released that it's a now an awakened factor in the mind or uh, another translation is like a limb it becomes sort of an active useful, functional powerfully functional part of the mind and investigation or wisdom really the wisdom quality and energy and rapture, joy these are the energizing factors and tranquility and that stillness, concentration, and equanimity. And Joseph goes on, he says, It is a mind which is shining and full of joy. That is what we are doing. Not only do the factors of awakening bring happiness in the moment, but all of them slope toward nirvana, toward enlightenment, toward freedom. Sometimes from day to day, it is easy to forget what it is we are doing in dealing with the restlessness and pains and aches and wandering mind. But what is happening imperceptibly from moment to moment, but very progressively, surely and steadily, is the development and growth of these limbs of awakening. It is a very great thing that is being done. It is the noblest evolution of mind. And Buddha said, mindfulness is conducive to great profit. That is the highest mental development. And it is through such attainment that deliverance from the sufferings of the cycle of existence, samsara, is possible. The person who delights in mindfulness and regards heedlessness with dread is not liable to fall away. She is in the vicinity of Nibbana. And at other times they talk about you know, developing these factors as sloping to Nibbana or like the Ganges inevitably slopes toward the ocean these, this balance of mind slopes to awakening and I'll read next week about uh, how the Buddha talked about the factors of enlightenment or the factors of awakening in light of of um, the full release of the heart, the unshakable release of the heart. But for this first week, let's, uh, in terms of your work at home, take the first factor of awakening, which is mindfulness. And mindfulness is sort of, uh, you know, the predominant factor in all of the teachings of the Buddha, as most of you know already. And if you don't know, the last thing the Buddha said, this is a translation from Thiyadasi, this great uh, Buddhist monk and scholar. He said, this is his translation of the Buddha's last words before he died. Transient are all component or conditioned things. Work out your deliverance with mindfulness. And the Buddha's chief disciple, sorry, Putta said his last words before he died. Strive on with mindfulness. This is my advice to you. 
the one word that's often corresponds with mindfulness is apamada sometimes translated as vigilance or heedfulness or awareness or careful attention so as we maybe as you saw in the guided meditation it takes a real intention in the mind not to forget to be mindful not to be, forget to be present but even though it takes a real effort that effort is very subtle so let's explore that this week like actually how much effort or what is the actual quality of the effort required to not forget this is how it is and just play with it be really playful of course in your sit your formal sitting time but then especially just out in the world you're walking from your car to the grocery store whenever you have a few minutes just try to go back to those four things the continuity of mindful attention so it doesn't matter what you're seeing what you're thinking what you're doing but it's the not forgetting this is how it is it's like this it's like this this is happening this is being thought this is being heard and then mindful uh, mindful silent the continuity of uh, silent mindful present moment attention and then focused silent mindful attention and then open silent mindful attention just explore these four things and I'll write these down in the email that I'll get out tomorrow just to help you remember but whatever you remember just work with that one <laughs> you know just mindful the, the continuity of mindful attention and to be really let's really focus on what is the effort that's required so apamata instead of thinking of it as a heavy effort you know a lot of times when people translate these uh, quotes from Sariputta and the Buddha their last words before they died they often use like he did with uh, Sariputta the word strive and we always translate that in our mind as like it's a heavy duty effort but I don't know about you I mean <laughs> I've bumped my head against this countless times over the last years of my practice where the striving itself kept got in the way of the continuity of mindfulness so it takes the the effort is in the continuity it's in the not forgetting that's the effort it's not like a big muscular mental effort it's just the continuity that not forgetting but not forgetting doesn't take a lot of effort it just needs to be continuous that's why it feels like it's heavy but it's not actually heavy it's just the not forgetting so what makes it uh, challenging and even a little tormenting is that we're never done that's, that's what makes mindfulness so challenging is that it's never done and what we'd like to do we don't mind making a big effort you know chopping a pile of wood or something like that because we know we're going to be done and then we're willing to do it you know we've got a 10 inches of snow okay I'll shovel it and then I'll be done but what makes mindfulness feel like so much work the effort is almost imperceptible but it has to be made moment by moment by moment by moment but now that's the not forgetting so let's really take this up as a study this week that the torment of continuity <laughs> <laughs>
we have to develop a taste for that kind of effort. And what we really want is to make some big muscular effort. I've been bad, I've been distracted, now I'm going to sort of make the effort to kind of... But that, you know, it's not really the task at hand. It's really the torment of continuity. We have to develop a taste for that and, and cultivate the muscle to be continuous. And a lot of that muscle is inspiration. You know, we need to be inspired that it's fruitful to be continuous, that it leads somewhere. And mostly we find that the big muscular effort leads somewhere, you know. We shout and something happens, or we push and something happens. But this very subtle, continuous effort, it's a more... uh, The uh, effect is very pervasive, but imperceptible. So we tend not to give it much weight. So this will... We'll have small groups next week. I'll talk... For those who are new to the Buddhist Studies class, I'll talk about what that means. But just know that we'll be breaking into small groups for about a half an hour next week. And we'll be talking about continuity of mindfulness and what that feels like, how you see it, what gets in the way, confusion about it, inspiration around it. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate being here together. Take a few breaths. And resting in the continuity of simple presence. And deeply appreciating the possibility of this beautiful heart-mind shining, luminous, deeply, deeply wise and generous and loving, capable of really showing up and responding in life. So may we all realize this awakened heart and be a cause for peace in the world and freedom from suffering. And thanks everyone for coming. Don't forget to sign in. I have a couple of program announcements. Uh, in case you haven't heard, we have a, a guest teacher this Saturday night. She hasn't spoken at Common Ground before. Her name is Venerable Satima. She's a fully ordained Buddhist nun, Bakuni, and uh, she's going to be speaking on the other beautiful map, the four Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and sympathetic joy. And uh, we have a full moon peace walk coming up. Uh, Shelley and I are looking for some of our experienced community members to act as facilitators for the full moon peace walk. So if anybody's interested in helping lead that program, you can see me. And... Uh, there's an intro class, if you know anybody who's interested, starting next Tuesday. Gail and Ramesh will be leading a pain workshop, Mindfulness and Physical Pain, this Saturday at 1.30? 1 o'clock to 5. 1 to 5 this Saturday. You can sign up in the entranceway. If you want to know more about that, you can talk to Gail. Any other announcements people have for the community? Yeah, Matt. This is a second-day retreat coming up, February 4th to the 11th. 
On the second shelf, there are flyers. And yeah, but uh, how did you say? Yeah, yeah. Who well, I've met a couple of times. He seems like a wonderful guy. He's the resident teacher at IMS right now. Any other announcements? Thank you, everyone. See you next Monday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.